Hello and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Today we're chatting to Leo Carew about his debut novel, The Wolf. We discuss how you begin putting a huge amount of planning down on paper, how to pace a fantasy epic, and perfecting the lyricism of your writing. It was late, the moon was high, the sun long since submerged beneath the horizon. Robus sat at a table that faced a leaded window. He'd done his best to banish the dark from this little corner of his quarters, and the collective effort of three oil lamps was providing him with light by which to plan a speech. Anakim have no writing, but when memorising long verses they use small, crude pictograms in linear fashion to be broadly representative of the theme. Robus scratched out a chain, the ink black as the night. It smelt faintly of soot, making him pause, standing the quill in the ink pot and staring through the rippled glass. A feathered, moonlit knife cut the dark as an owl slid past the window. This would be his first speech. He had no idea whether he would get the chance to deliver it, but he must be ready to take the opportunity when the time came. He took up the quill once more and carved another symbol onto the page. It sounded odd. He looked at the tip of the quill, frowning, and heard the noise again. It was a creak. The slight strain of thick leather as it stretched, insignificant as a cat's footfall. But Roper heard it. And I wouldn't have done if I was asleep, he thought. As quietly as he could, he extinguished the lamps by retracting the wicks and slid his legs to the side of the chair so he could stand without the need to move it. Three quick, silent strides in the dark and he had reached his weapon chest, iron-bound oak behind the door, on top of which lay his sword. The noise came again from outside the door, a boot contracting slowly as its owner brought their weight down upon it. Roper eased his blade from its scabbard, eyes wide as he tried to adapt to the gloom. The window glowed with just enough moonlight for Roper to be able to see the latch on the door lift, for he could not hear it. It swung open by ten inches, enough for a dark-clothed figure to slide through and relatch the door. Whoever it was had not seen Roper. Their attention was focused on his bed, and the unmade woollen blankets piled enough to give a passable impression of the figure sleeping within. Roper was certain the assassin must hear his heartbeat. He could hear almost nothing else as the blood roared through his ears and his hands jumped in time with the savage thump. The figure was masked. He must act. He must kill the man, who had realised at any moment the Roper's bed was empty. Roper stepped forwards. Hi Leo, how are you doing? Hi, very well, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the Riff Raff podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Um, so please, can we start with you telling us a little about your debut novel, The Wolf? Oh, that's a good question. Okay, um, so The Wolf imagines a world in which more than one species of human survived the Ice Age and basically inhabit a sort of Dark Age version of Britain, which is slightly altered because the climate is different. So it's kind of written and you know published as like a fantasy, but... I slightly think of it as more of an alternate history, and um, it follows two different protagonists, one on each side of the conflict, one from this kind of alternate race of humans and one from the sort of the race of humans we know today, and um, their struggles against each other, essentially. Okay. And you wrote, well, came up with this idea as a 12-year-old boy. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> so that's amazing. Like, good commitment to getting your book written. Yeah, thank <laughs> you. Um, but I believe it also um, came about when you were... So, like living in the Arctic Circle. So did, was, yeah. did that have something to do with the Ice Age? Yeah, I think um, I think boredom has been quite a big driver <laughs> of my writing up until this point. So the kind of the original idea when I was twelve, I literally used to walk to choir every day, and that was a good sort of half an hour on my own um, of just sort of thinking time. And that was before 
podcasts and sort of music and things like that. So I just kind he of was before music. <laughs> <laughs> before That's you a could good listen point. Yeah. To music. <laughs> before I had an iPod, definitely. It's gotcha. <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> Before, yeah, before I had an iPod or like a certainly like a smartphone or anything, and um, so yeah, just literally used to have to imagine stuff in my head while I was walking along, and um, came up with this story and kind of was slightly intrigued as to why humans seem so physically feeble, and um, I went to university and sort of discovered why that was, and uh, because we ended up domesticating ourselves when we adopted agriculture, so by sort of living in very close quarters you kind of select for people who have much lower levels of kind of testosterone and cortisol and adrenal responses um, and the average height of people dropped by a sort of foot after we adopted agriculture and kind of bone density decreased massively and even brain size sort of decreased hugely so we are a kind of domesticated version of of homo sapiens akin to like a dog as a dog is to a wolf versus <laughs> our... This is a 12-year-old boy's Forget about your book. Let's just talk about this for the next half. I think it's genuinely fascinating. fascinating. It's so yeah. great, isn't it? Yeah. It's similar to Sapiens, isn't it? That's kind of yeah. that's sort of picking up on ideas like that. Completely. Yeah. And this, this entire thing has just been completely unlocked by genetics as well. And Richard... Uh, Richard... Richard... No, David Rice, sorry. has just written a new book on um, genetics and sort of unpicking the human genome and it reveals sort of how we're related to neanderthals denisovans this new species of human who we have sort of genetic evidence of but no actual fossil evidence and um i find it so intriguing that's kind of what the anakim the alternate race of humans in the book are based on is this like idea that we know these species existed genetically but we don't know what they look like or behave like in any way at all um which is found like a really compelling intriguing idea yeah and presumably you acquired this the sort of scientific insight later you weren't 12 when yeah you know all this. No. <laughs> so it's how interesting that you came up with a sort of fantasy world and then pursued it do you think that it was always the same drive that it was always the same spark of an idea that was has driven you through your career or yeah I do yeah I think and I think I ended up studying I think there's always been a real interest in humans and um how what our place is in the natural world I guess and that's why I went I think that's why I started writing the book um and I think that's also why I went to university to study biological anthropology which is when all the sort of scientific side of things came into it um but yeah no, I think it's very much part wow. of the same thing and now into medicine as well now into medicine yeah. as well yeah just know everything about the human body exactly as much as possible to know <laughs> well, why not um so so yeah I, so I can only yeah I can only really imagine the time that you spent like dreaming up this world. So obviously these walks to to choir and everything as well. But it seems like there would be like a serious amount of doodling and daydreaming and drawing of family trees and all that kind of stuff. So I, I wondered if you could let us in kind of on your like creative process with coming up with the ideas and like planning the sort of. Yeah, um, it's sort of I think it kind of happens very piecemeal and because I've been writing this for such a long time. So it's obviously like uh, first when I was twelve and then kind of. Um, Latterly, when I was like 23, started properly trying to put it down on paper for the first time. It's I've had a very long time to think about all of this, and um, it's just every single spare moment I've got, I've been sort of revisiting the world and sort of working out what the background plot is behind various characters or sort of events. But actually, it took um, as much as you think you know it. It's really hard to see how that's going to work as a novel until you've actually tried putting it down on paper. So 
you can think through as much as you want and then you try and plot it and make it into a book and you discover that actually the pacing's horribly off and that bit you'd always envisage doesn't work at all and this character needs way more fleshing out so there's a lot of I think a large part of the process was just literally trying to get through it and then go back and sort of make sure it all makes sense retrospectively and sort of develop it as you go um so yeah I'd say the kind of the main thing was literally just to just to commit myself to a good five hours of writing a day five hours of writing a day yeah was that, when you, was that when you were living in the arctic circle so you had five hours spare because that's obviously not where you've been studying to be a doctor yeah no the um, no the five <laughs> hours more of time than everyone else. yeah <laughs> he knows everything about the human body already he probably knows how to turn that time or something <laughs> do you know how to do that i can't yet no ah. i'm still working on that we but, believe in you thank <laughs> you <laughs> Uh, well, that's very reassuring. No, but the um, the yeah, so the Arctic thing was kind of that was getting it all sorted out in my head, and then because um, I was sort of doing a lot of skiing and, and walking and um, living in a tent as well, with and you've got some twenty four hour darkness, and um, again, no internet, obviously, no smartphones, so loads of time to think and sort of plan that all out, and that was really great for like the space to get through that, but then. Um, didn't really start writing it down until I got back to the UK and I was applying for medicine and doing sort of chemistry night school and things and um, it just seemed like a really good time to have you know more time to commit to writing the book um, literally like I went to go and train as a doctor and that seemed like the best time to like time. write more <laughs> wow and not just the book like a trilogy as yeah. well yeah, yeah. <laughs> blown away by your work ethic and you mentioned um, that you know sometimes you started to write and some of the things didn't quite pan out was mm. there any plot points or scenarios or characters that you had to abandon that was difficult oh that's a good question um yes like lots of lots and lots of plot points um <clears throat> like i found that actually when the main problem was that i mean reading this book you might not think it's sort of particularly light on the battles but like um I found the main problem was just that there were too many battles. Like, the book I'd envisaged just had so many over and over again. And it was really clear to me, even before before I'd sort of submitted it to an agent or a publisher or anyone, that it was just too much and, like, too repetitive and kind of just had to cull that completely and come with some more inventive ways of having kind of conflict. I yeah. think it's like having, you know, plan this as a, young, as a young kid. Like, that was the only conflict I could really envisage. <laughs> Um, got some good conflicts in there, like some good varied conflicts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's that's been a lot of effort, like trying yeah. to work out those. Yeah, <laughs> it's good enough. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not simple. Yeah. Like, that's that's one thing that, like, you know, because sometimes, I mean, I I admit that I didn't read Lord of the Rings. I couldn't get past the songs <laughs> at the beginning, and like, but you know, in a lot of fantasies, can, fantasy books can be quite slow, and like this book is not slow. Like it's, it is, it is like it goes from like act, like big event, big event to big event to big event, and like, yeah. and, and, and and like, and it's yeah. That, that was really that was really my goal every single day I sat down mm. and think about that to try and make it as fast as possible because I, honestly the biggest struggle was the self-doubt you're just sort of sitting in this coffee shop <laughs> thinking I am literally making this up on the spot why would <laughs> anyone want to read this and I thought the only solution could possibly be to make it as fast as as fast as possible yeah well you've done that it's, I mean it, it, <laughs> it's, it's, it's incredibly fast paced and it is also it's, it's very it's really compelling and like yeah like I'm like I'm two thirds through and like absolutely like I don't really want to be here. I want to be reading the book. Oh, thank you. I must. I must warn you. There is a song coming up a towards song. the end. I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I genuinely. I'm so sorry. 
Do you want to sing us a little bit now? I'm not sure it's a singing type thing. I can't. Uh. Is, it, is it played on a lute? I don't. Because <laughs> well, you had the you had the guy that was telling the kind of like the fable about the battleground. Yeah, and that yeah, yeah. Was, And I was like, oh no, there's going to be a song. But yeah. then he didn't sing it. Oh yeah, he, so he just yeah. described it in like the, sto- in the I mean, story. That's terms. that's the issue because there is another f- sort of fable thing coming up, and I felt I can't <laughs> twice just report he then told this great fable. I have to actually write one, otherwise it just looked really lazy at some point. So I kind of thought. I actually had to produce a song. I'm so sorry. Like I, I really don't like it very much. <laughs> I bet it's great. How have you great. conveyed it in text? The song? Yeah. Um, I, tr- I tried to write it in verse and everything. It was just... <clears throat> um, I kind of thought about it as like... Have you ever heard like Inuit throat singing? I can't say. I haven't. No. <laughs> I've, I've heard of throat singing before. Yeah, but not but Inuit not throat singing. Not yeah. specifically Inuit. Yeah. It's only the Inuits that throat sing? Or is I it think there's other... Cu- there uh, are, yeah. I think like... Um, I don't know if it's sort of like Nepali and stuff as well, but like... Um, We'd be taking massive guesses with... We, yeah, with humongous ones, yeah, for sure. Um, anyway, so like I saw that for the first time and it's a really like compelling, interesting... Um, it's very otherworldly and like I heard it for the first time and I thought like that's so different to any form of like music that I know I really want. Um, it's just really compelling and I yeah. really wanted um, this alternate species to have it. It's this, because it's just so... It's just so odd... So I tried to kind of describe how that might sound if you were seeing it, you were hearing it for the first time, mm. and then wrote everything out in like verse, and it just took forever, and I'm not very proud of it. So. <laughs> I can't wait to get to that. How interesting though to just—I don't—I think you must be the first author we've ever had who has conveyed a song in text. Yeah. I think that's really interesting to have to convey music. Oh really? Oh, I think you must be. I can't think of anybody. I think we've had authors who've referenced popular songs that most people will know, but I don't think anyone's ever. Actually, trying to do, yeah, trying to take like a, a form of music that like no one really knows about, and then make a song. Explain out of it, it to people. I mean, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, that's that's. Good. I mean, good for you for taking that on. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't sound like you shy away from a challenge. So you know. Um, so, well, go on, you're, oh, you're good. Um, sorry, we're just so obsessed with the Inuit throat. <laughs> um, so. It's obviously, we're talking about it in terms of you sitting in tents and coffee shops imagining it all, but yeah. there must, you must have had to be quite organised, I would imagine, with your planning, you're looking at me like, no, you weren't. Um, <laughs> did, you, did, did you keep, did, how much um, sort of record keeping did you keep of who was going to be where, which character was doing what, the, the scope of the world... Yeah, um, I most of it was related to the society, the sort of Anakin society. I tried <clears throat> really hard to kind of work out the like actual intimate workings of how that thing fit together. And like the my idea was that like most vast majority of that hasn't made into the book, so I've got loads and loads of documents on my laptop of sort of you know what how they measure time and like what their kind of structure of history is and how all this stuff actually works. And then I try and put almost none of that into the book because a it's not relevant, but and it just slows things down. But it also it, I think it's just I think there's like something about having a sort of underlying structure which makes people potentially believe in the world much much more, mm. even if you're not actually reporting it. Like I've just gone through and made sure everything makes sense right down to the kind of bottom level, um, and I had like a not an argument but like a conversation with someone on Twitter the other day about like one of the sort of uh, aspects of the society like the alternate species of human can't write so yeah, I tried I've got a question about this but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I find that really interesting that you've chosen to that, that but then carry on with yeah. your point yeah well it's, well it's sort of um, 
And I tried to work out how would you form a complex society which couldn't write. And I tried to take it right down to the bottom and sort of think through everything. So this guy kept coming back to me with kind of more and more problems as to like why not being able to write would be a big problem for society. And I was like, ah, oh, but actually they do. They do this. It's just not in the book. And like kind of this is what they do. And like I genuinely like to think I have thought it all through. So I do have these like massive documents of sort of reference material. Oh my god, that is like so it's all consistent. the fantasy fan's dream to I, know I that know. these documents exist. <laughs> like, I bet everyone everywhere is like, oh my yeah. god, these, these secret K- files. Keep I don't know that voice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, Amy. So, oh, you've made enemies, Amy. <laughs> you have. Um, but, but, like, they will be so valuable. Like, people will, Amy's right, like, people, fans of the books will want to access everything and want to know all about the world. Yeah, I, I, th- I think it's best to leave loads of this stuff unanswered, though, and kind of try and, um, I think there's something quite compelling about not knowing sometimes and I leave me a lot of unanswered questions and sort of it's there for my reference but I suspect it would be I think it kind of ruin it in a way if you just sort of actually expose everyone to it well that's also the beauty of fantasy isn't it because you know it's you get to create the world in your head so even though you've got the descriptions and the ideas of why they are the way they are and everything like everything forms in your interpretation of it mm. so if, if it's too kind of prescriptive then it, it just takes away a bit of the imagination yeah. which is the beauty of it really. yeah and I, I worry if I describe it and then kind of someone else points out a way that it really doesn't make sense then I can't sort of retrospectively edit it yeah. or leave myself you know a bit of breathing room for if um, I've made a terrible mistake somewhere yeah. <laughs> I think people people do try and pick holes in things like fantasy people yeah. enjoy it people you know it's a yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, a sure. pastime you know yeah. you're going to get so much fan fiction as well <laughs> people are going to start shipping your I characters which I only recently learned what that meant. What is shipping? Shipping is when you take two characters and you put them into, as I understand it, and I'm about to get, I'm going to get complaints, you put them into a romantic scenario. Ah, and then you kind of create art and fan fiction around that. So a lot of people shipped two of the members of really famous boy band, one's got shaky hair, One Direction. Uh-huh. Don't pretend you don't know who Wando is. Harry, there's Harry, <laughs> and then there's uh, Zane, Liam, Niall. I think it's <laughs> I think it's another one, and they shipped Louis. Harry and it's either Liam or Louis. Anyway, we're getting off topic. I'm just saying that might happen. I think it almost certainly Interesting. will. Interesting. Interesting. Interesting as well because there's not that many women in the book, so it'd just be yeah. like this huge homoerotic party. I have already had quite a lot of that so far, actually. Really? Quite a lot of people getting in touch with me like, are oh, such and such gay? Really? Are the two of them in a relationship together? You Again, can, I think it's one of those things that's easier not to like answer particularly directly. Yeah. yeah. Interesting though, that's how people's heads are going to yeah, straight away. Yeah, no, it is interesting. I think you should put that quote. You can have that quote from Amy on your dust jacket if you want. Huge home <laughs> Huge, <party>. yeah. <laughs> Make sure you get it accurate. In t- in, in, taking it back on topic, it's yeah. t- in terms of the um, the characters that, that aren't able to write or have never, was that kind of, was that due to all the kind of... Um, the genetic stuff that you were talking about earlier, like that kind of that sort of decision, was yeah, that, was that why you just? How come you decided to have this this whole race that like yeah can't? Yeah, it's a combination of two things really. The first is that uh, this I used as like an analogy for this race, the Neanderthals, yeah. and um, one of the big theories about why we survived and Neanderthals didn't for a long time has been the Neanderthals had this sort of really reduced ability to comprehend symbolism, um, which I think it probably isn't right, but if it is right what would be the kind of consequences of that for, you know, for a species of human like that setting up a society. And, like, I think probably the first thing to go would be writing because quite a lot of people struggle with that now. Mm. I do. Um, <laughs> I got to the age of 10 being unable to read. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Um, and I, that's, like, part of the other reason, like, slightly emotionally, like, I was just, like, they're kind of, like, kindred spirits, therefore, because, like, they 
I kind of envisage like if there was a society of very severely like dyslexic people, would they actually ever develop the ability to write? Because it would be such a challenge and like I I think you probably could if you sat one of them down and kind of taught them over and over again, but like it would just be so hard that I don't think they bother with it, bother with it as a society. But I just thought it was kind of I like the most fun part of this was developing the cognitive differences between modern humans and um the Anakim, the fictional race. And um it was just very interesting to kind of experiment with things that could be sort of enhanced or reduced and symbolism and writing seemed like one of the kind of big big changes you can make. Yeah. Mm. So so are you are you dyslexic? I'm dyspraxic. Okay. Um which I think I think was part of the reason why um I learned to read really really late yeah yeah do you think that's how in any way that's kind of informed the sort of how, how you write in terms of how you perceive the world or like anything like that do you think there's any kind of you know what tips do you have for other people that are dyspraxic that potentially would like uh, to write sure books? so i like um i think i'm not entirely sure about that but like i basically think i am my dyspraxia like i cannot imagine seeing the world in any other way um, I think it's got loads of advantages as well. Like, so this guy is actually like discussing on Twitter about the sort of Anakin not being able to write and stuff. I said I envisaged them being like a kind of society of dyslexics almost. And he replied with some comment about like, um, uh, he said like, but there's, but nowhere is it written that like the Anakin must have severe learning difficulties. And I was like, hold, hold the phone, like, <laughs> wait a minute. But come <laughs> um, And I kind of, I slightly view it as like an advantage as well. I think it means that I'm sort of. It slows down my processing speed. It means that I find it very hard to decode symbols. Um, but there seem to be a lot of other kind of advantages. In terms of like the writing thing, it was audiobooks, which really helped me learn how to write. Um, and I had a really good or, uh, like memory for hearing. So um, first book I ever really listened to is Harry Potter. Amazing. Stephen Fry one, yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> and... Um, Having heard that for the first time, I sort of I then like learned the book off by heart because I liked it so much, and then matched it up to the noises of Stephen Fry, matched them up to the words on the page, and worked out how to read from that. Wow! Um, so I'm not sure that's a very helpful tip for sort of people struggling with reading and writing, but it just did. It came very late to me, um, and now obviously like my life revolves around books and sort of um, writing. So it's sort of, I just think it's kind of never too late, basically. Yeah, and that's also really interesting in terms of how you would, like the pacing and like the tone of things, like the kind of like the musicality of writing, like that, if you've, if you've mm. learnt it from hearing and mm. that kind of, you know, because that's so important, isn't it? Like, it's so important, of, yeah. Yeah. <coughs> yeah, and just like so much of, for me, so much of writing is like rereading a sentence where you've conveyed the information you want to convey and just realising there's something about the kind of like lyricism of it which sounds wrong. And you've got to kind of redo it. And I, yeah, I think so much reading is just sort of reading it out loud and kind of making, um, making certain that there's a kind of like pleasing rhythm to how you say the words. Mm. Now the song makes more sense as well. Yeah. The fact that you wanted to, I, um, that, yeah, that makes a lot more sense. The fact that that you know you wanted to convey sounds yeah. and you know rhythm and song in mm. text. I think that's incredibly admirable, Leo. And I think actually anyone who's listening who does struggle with writing and reading will be really inspired. By listening to you talk so thank you for sharing that with us oh thank you um <coughs> obviously when you're creating fantasy worlds like the one that you've done you get to name everything oh, create course, yeah. names <laughs> and there's a real it's a real delicate art to create names for say uh the weapons which mm-hmm. you've done as, as an example 
and give them names that sound like almost you've heard it before. Mm-hmm. That almost, like yeah, that mm. sound like kind of real words. How did you go about creating the names? Oh uh, yeah, I, to be honest, I kind of, I mostly hate naming. Sometimes you find like a really good one, and um, you're like, ah, that's perfect, Just nailed it. But um, most of the time, I find myself really frustrated and kind of like feeling like you haven't quite summed it up. My big worry when I was writing it is again this like sensation of who on earth is going to want to read this stuff and therefore I didn't want to create names which were so inaccessible that people would just be put off by it I know I've read like my first year of fantasy books where you've sort of got to this name which is kind of almost unpronounceable and it just sort of it really really puts me off and so I wanted words which sounded sort of similar and from like a kind of both similar but from an identifiably other culture um so things like Anakim, I quite often go to other reference materials of sort of old words and old books and things to find stuff which isn't currently used but has comes from an existing language so that it sounds both plausible and to an extent familiar. And Anakim comes from the Bible, actually. <clears throat> it's one of the... Um, there's a series of giant races mentioned in the Bible. And um, I've always been kind of interested by the idea that the... Bible stories might have been inspired in some way by kind of um, cultural memories of things which happened. So if the sort of story of Noah and the Flood is really about the catastrophic rise in sea levels which happened after the Ice Age. Um, and simply I kind of wondered if if these stories of giant races were like a cultural memory of when modern humans first got to Europe and discovered these species of human which were like them but kind of unmistakably a bit weird and a bit other like Neanderthals and were huge and sort of I quite like that and like the sort of nod it gave to the to the Neanderthals is like this sort of the inspiration behind the Anakim um, so a lot of it's a lot of it's based on kind of trying to say a little bit more about the thing but also mostly it's it's just an effort to kind of you know make something which you can get your head and your tongue around without putting you off too much Um a lot of the other ones are words in different languages. Ooh. So some of the um, <coughs> some of the names mean things in different languages. Um, like Avoran, who's the primary villain. Mm. I think that means reckless in Ooh, nice. Norwegian. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that makes that that's so that's so neat. Yeah. Isn't it? Like Although any Norwegian reading is like this guy isn't even this is subtle. Ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like the names of the swords are fun. Yeah, like cold edge. Yeah, that's like, enjoyable. Br- brighter, brighter. Is it bright? Bright shock. Yeah. Bright shock. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what a badass name that's for a sword. Cracking. Yeah. <laughs> must, that that must sword. be quite a fun. That's fun quite fun. Yeah, and yeah. like, and cold edge as well was like, um, that's uh, Svalbard is the place I lived up in the tent in the Arctic, and Svalbard is Old Norse for cold edge. Um, so I quite like that. Yeah, a little nice. nod to like yeah. where I came up with the the names and stuff. Mm. And it's a nod to Philip Pullman as well, who I know is a yeah. big influence. Yeah, yeah. And Northern Lights has got to be one of the most engrossing oh, books. I love that I mean, book so much. Being in that environment, such an, an otherworldly environment as being somewhere like that, how, you said you were still thinking and forming the book there, mm. how much <coughs> do you think that sort of informed the world that you created, being in a really alien environment? Well, what to most of us would be a very alien environment. Yeah, that's a good question. I think the um, the sort of Black Kingdom where most of this is set is very sort of wintry and kind of mountainous and that's definitely, there's a real sense of kind of this is just an epic place when you get to Svalbard. Um, you sort of, you just have this sense when you're there that 
somehow everything is means a little bit more and like is a little bit sort of deeper and is just a little bit more compelling. Um, and I was genuinely completely haunted by that place. It was just, it's just so atmospheric and it's so beautiful and everything there feels really sort of epic in a way. And like there's these sort of mountains separate. And I just really wanted to bring some sense of that atmosphere to the Black Kingdom where this book is set and try and create this world where um, physically, not just in terms of the people inhabit it, but just like how it is and it looks and it feels, there's this like sense of something more about it. Um, I think that was probably the primary contributions Farbot made. Lots of the other stuff was already kind of in place and I just like developed it when it was there, but just really wanted that sort of sense from it. Yeah. Oh, I really want to go now. Oh, it's so great. <laughs> <laughs> Done. Um, so we, we spoke about it a little bit earlier about battle scenes. You were saying that you mm-hmm. obviously had a lot of them. I mean, writing battles is quite... Like, I imagine I've never written anything even resembling a battle. Yeah. But like, it, seems, it seems like it would be quite a, a tricky thing to, to write. Mm. And I'm sure it's the, kind of, and it's the thing that you probably most want to nail, don't you? you know, that's the thing yeah. that people remember. Yeah, yeah. So I just wondered if you could let us in on how you um, approached writing battle scenes. Yeah. Um, I th- I, like My primary approach was to try and involve all of the senses. So first of all, have like a really good overview of what is happening and what would, you know, if you had like a sort of drone overlooking it, how it would appear. So they, so people are actually clear on what's going on. Because otherwise I think it's just annoying to sort of read this kind of chaotic melee thing. Like you can't really appreciate why it's significant. But then try and involve all of the senses in terms of what you're actually describing. Because that's obviously so much of what you'd be experiencing. Um, so to like to get a little bit of a taste of that I tried to go to like Mai Tai sessions you know like Thai boxing and things and like just to get a sense of what it's actually like to be hit in the face <laughs> did, um, did you get hit in the face? oh yeah so many times like, I'm, <laughs> I'm really not very good at that it turns out it might, might be a like dyspraxic type thing but and that's what anyone likes being hit in the face do they? No. <laughs> what, what commitment to your to my art to I your know. art <laughs> my ex-boyfriend wanted to get in the Mai Tai ring but he'd had quite a lot to drink and I held him back so. <laughs> that sounds very wise yeah, yeah. <laughs> um Sorry, battle scenes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, it's, the sensory element is yeah. so interesting. I, I think it's so important. And like, um, and what about in terms of strategy? Because like the the battles that you've got are really strategic. Mm, you know, they're, and yeah. they're like they're sneaky and like it's 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 proper like mm. you know it's it's underhanded. It's, type yeah, stuff, underhanded yeah. stuff. Yeah. And so yeah, how did you do? You just are you just really au okay with military strategy? Or? Yeah. No, like I do genuinely love that kind of thing, which is why battles appear so much. But like. Um, I found for the whole thing and I researched the entire thing, history was such a, like inexhaustible supply of um, ideas. Like there's a, <coughs> uh, just po- in terms of politically what you can do to each other and also the kind of techniques used in various battles. I think almost all of them are derived from some famous battle I read about when I was younger and like, because um, I love studying like the Spartans and the Romans and stuff and um, there's just so many of them and people have done everything. Yeah. You really can't come up with anything fresh, I don't think. Um, it's all there already, so like it's great to like go back and, and research the obscure ones and sort of find something really clever that some ancient general has done once, and you're sort of like, oh, that's perfect. Amazing. But, yeah. And you don't really mind plagiarising their ideas. You Not at all, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, a, what a wonderful um, research wormhole to fall into. Just like, I'm just sorry, I'm just researching battles. Ancient battles, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds fun. <laughs> You do get to like, you do every now and then just sit there saying, this is my job, this is amazing. Yeah. Like, just reading about that kind of stuff, it's so much fun. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and 
with that level of detail, there's always the risk, especially with fantasy, that the reader can get a bit bogged down in, mm. in detail. And, <coughs> you know, there is always the need to kind of explain new characters and, and stuff mm. like that. That's why I gave up on Game of Thrones very early on, because right, they yeah. were just, I sat there watching it with the family tree on my lap and was just like, who's that? Who's that? Yeah. Sorry, who's that again? <laughs> who's he sleeping with? Oh, it's his sister. Okay, I should have seen that. Um, <laughs> and but But these, like, as Amy was saying, it's so readable and it's so fast-paced. How did you balance, be, get the balance between giving enough detail to make the world really rounded and to satisfy people who really like mm. that, but also keep a really strong narrative going and keep pace going? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I actually think one of the repetition is potentially one of the more important points of that because, like, like you sit, you say, you sit there with the family tree in your lap. I think that's kind of unforgivable. Like, if you if you get to the stage where the reader just has absolutely no idea who you're talking about you probably need to introduce that character again just a little sort of reminder because that's just so much faster and easier than having them ha- like go through the rest of the scene not knowing who you're talking about which i think is just a massive mm. turn off mm. um so yeah try and keep the cast of characters down a little bit and sort of make sure it's sort of um the ones that you have got are so distinctive that nobody could forget about them because i also partly think the thing people read about books for is is almost exclusively character in some ways mm. um if you haven't nailed those and made them really sort of memorable and stuff i think that's when people are going to start switching off um so yeah i'd say focus mostly on the character in terms of the kind of rest of stuff just make sure that you've got enough action in between or enough development of the plot in between every little um what's the word well, sort of that exposition yeah and exposition then, yeah, exactly and then, so have yeah. that then push it forward and then come exactly yeah. just just like make sh- just vary it up constantly like mm. sort of action expedition um uh, like character development just sort of make sure there's a proper <coughs> break in between each of them and then each one becomes more refreshing when you get to it if you have too much fun in a row then you're going to end up inevitably um just boring everyone to tears mm. i should point out as well that i watched game of thrones on new year's day um so <laughs> I, I don't know how I, I think the problem was me i don't think, <laughs> I think the characters were distinctive but i just couldn't get on board and you i watched think it or you're trying to read it i watched it i uh, read it i, I think i, I would one, i think like, i would do a lot like better the reading it um what <laughs> <laughs> i did not I, it, I'm not the target audience. I don't want to get letters. Please don't make me sign up again. We'll leave it there. Yeah, <laughs> I need to get around to it, but it just feels like quite a commitment, you know. I, yeah. was, I was like, I'm going to read the books, and we, then they they were also massive. So I read yeah. the first one, and then was like, I'll get around to them. And then yeah, yeah. and then I was like, well, I want to read the book fir- books first, and then I've never done that or watched the series. I, I've actually never read the books. Well, yeah. now you've got two more of Leo's books to read as well. Yeah, I know. So I'm, I'm psyched. Suck it off. Um, so there are, there are also some really funny <coughs> moments in the book as well. Like um, I think I, I mean I like I like all the, I like the banter between all the sort of all the different warriors. Like when they're like like the like between kind of like. Um, Takoa, Takoa, yeah. like and and, and yeah. like the, the, the way that they kind of banter, I find it really funny, and um, I know that's probably maybe that's not intentional. But I do think <laughs> I do think that humour has um, like you know that's kind of what I've enjoyed in some in fantasy that I've read, like you know mm. like when in Lord of the Rings when like they're kind of like. Kill, you know, when Legolas and the dwarf dude are like killing each other, killing, not killing each other, killing, having a competition, and having competitions, kill more type like thing, that yeah. kind of, like, and I think humour plays a massive role to kind yeah, of break it all up. Definitely. And I wondered, yeah, was that something that you were intentionally trying to feed in there? Yeah, completely. I think partly that um, uh, that's just that's something which happens all the time, and it's, I think it's really bizarre in books which leave out humour to an extent because 
there are very rarely you go through a day without people actually making loads of jokes about stuff and like so I, I think if you just leave it too somber it just feels very dramatized and very kind of uh, narratively heavy and stuff also I'm trying to write a I I think fancy can tend towards the over somber um, and sort of gravely I smote off his head type stuff and I quite like to break that up and show that you're not taking it too seriously because otherwise it can become a bit of a self-parody but like apart from anything I just anything else I just really enjoy writing characters who sort of take the piss out of each other and um, lots of it was like like Tekoa his, his lines are mostly inspired by my dad who just sort of says these kind of absurdly insulting things to people which really make me laugh um, and uh, quite a lot of them are just verbatim stuff that he said and I'm just like I've got to put that in a book when it's just so funny <laughs> he loves that he's like this badass like, yeah. like that's so cool does he like that um, I don't, no, I don't I, that. that sounds familiar. I don't, I don't think he's even that aware of it, to be honest. If he listens to this, this may be the first time he finds out. But yeah, oh, well, how <laughs> lovely, lovely tribute. <laughs> yeah. and, and so obviously there's there's two more, and uh, yeah. there's and so how much of them? How much? How much of them did you have mapped out before you had written this one? Did you have everything mapped out and planned? For yeah. The plot? Okay. Yeah. Those two I had completely mapped out. Um, and this one was actually the one I didn't have mapped out, the first one, because this, the first one was just literally a sort of, I wrote the first two when I was like 12 to sort of 14, and then um, I found myself wondering where did the characters from that come from, um, which is what this first one was, just like an exploration of sort of, kind of like an origin story in a way. Um, and so it's, this, it's the second two which I've actually written before, um, but I set up loads of strands in the first one, which I'm now having to pursue in the second one and it's been quite challenging um so at the moment i'm stuck in rewrites in the second one trying to make sure you know it's a coherent narrative and actually sort of god can you imagine if working. it wasn't oh, the, oh my oh, god the don't, tweets you don't. Would get. <laughs> um, how much of the stuff that you wrote when you were 12 to 14 like are there any lines that are still exactly the same as things that you wrote when you are like any kind of exact bits that were still there's literally one bit of it which i think is salvageable um, and which will appear in the third book. The rest of it is so painful, I actually can't, I really can't bear to read through it again. I would it's, love to read oh it. Oh no, it's, just, it's honestly so, so painful. That's God, you, you look so uncomfortable just talking I, about it. I really it. can't, yeah. Actually, I heard about this event, um, I think it's organised by the Literary Consultancy, and she's just started this event called, like, it's, it's to do with like that kind of thing, like where authors read the very early mm-hmm. um, bits, bits of their novels. Oh yeah. I mean, like, that to, like, to any author, that's awful. Like, you'd have to, yeah. but like, that's maybe, Maybe I'll suggest you. Link <laughs> <laughs> up on Twitter. And <laughs> um, um, we've we have touched upon it, but your day job is as a doctor, obviously. Yeah. Um, what t- do you specialise in? Firstly, training. Training. Oh, still yeah, still in medical school. Fine. Any, any army. Uh, so it's going to be army army medicine. Amazing. So this is just sort of regular medical school, and then um, I go into the army for my first foundation years and train there and go off me an army doctor. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Are you, are you, have you got any other grand plans for big, huge things you want to do with your life? I mean, I, re- like, I really want to go to Mars, essentially. Cool. I mean, you probably, <laughs> won't, you probably won't come back. You know that, right? I mean, I probably won't get there, I think, is the primary Well, worry. not with that attitude, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, there is a question coming, um, which is, how are you so productive? And please tell us your secret to being so productive, because... I, my work isn't that hard, and I still struggle to write. Um, I generally spend a lot of my time exhausted. So, like, <laughs> cool. last, I really, yeah, really, like, last year I 
I burnt out quite heavily. Actually, so last year was like I was doing, um, I was writing The Wolf and like doing graduate entry medicine at the same time and trying to run an ultramarathon, which was, which takes up a lot of time, like training run wise and things, and just was so fatigued by the end of it. Just found that I really couldn't do anything very fast anymore. Um, so took a year out of medicine and kind of to focus on writing The Spider which is the second book and um, that was just lovely actually being able to recover for a bit and kind of get back up to speed because uh, yeah it did bite off more than I should have done um, lesson learned yeah yeah absolutely don't try <laughs> and run that's yeah. a lot to take on sorry I'm just trying to like I'm just trying to process everything you've just said like tip to productivity don't try and run an ultra marathon writing a trilogy time, yeah. whilst training to be a doctor okay no, yeah. no I think like the like what I had in my head was that like a change is as good as a break so if you can do varied enough things mm-hmm. it won't matter too much and actually like the running was a really nice break really concentrated way of sort of like resetting your mind and like sort of burning off some you know excess mm-hmm. energy and things like that um, it yeah. In the end, they did just try a bit too much and like. You could have just done a 10k, couldn't you? Yeah, yeah I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I feel like I want to go and make you a cup of tea and just <laughs> give you just 10 minutes. Just to relax. Yeah, just Thank you. Interesting. In, I'm interested to know whether you, um, when you were running, when you didn't, because I think mm. running's like I think exactly that. Like it helps me to switch off and like mm. reset and stuff. Do you listen to anything when you run, or was that kind of your like time to just have no thing, nothing mm. in your brain, no thing in your brain, no <laughs> things. <laughs> Um, I, yeah, like lots of different stuff because especially training for the ultra, you'd sort of like go on like a five hour run on a Sunday or something. It's like you have to have a lot of entertainment while you're doing it. Podcasts were great. Um, so much music. And actually most of my, most of the scenes in my book were set to music. So it'd be running is like my, one of my primary sort of thinking times for the book. Um, I find there's something about the kind of like rhythm of it where like lots of my favorite lines would come up with while running. Um, and most of the scenes are set to music in some way, so I'll have like a particular song in mind when I'm writing the scene. So like the climax will coincide with like the climax of the song. Um, so I find, it, I find it really good for inspiration actually running. Like yeah. that that's genuinely one of the things I've relied on most in writing when I'm stuck. Go out for a run, yeah. um, and it really helps clear my head and sort of make things a bit more ordered. You know. Yeah, I love the idea that some of your scenes are set to music, like, yeah. like well known well known songs. Uh, How much of it is Inuit throat singing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no Inuit throat singing. We've got what else is what is there? Johnny Flynn. Rings a bell. Johnny Flynn is like a folk singer. He does a song called Tickle Me Pink, where like one of the scenes is set to that. Um, another one called Cold Bread. Kate Bush. Okay. What? Kate Bush. <laughs> um, Cloud busting. Oh, Kate Bush. Only that song. I'm a massive Kate Bush fan. Uh, As anyone who's ever come to any of our events or interacted <laughs> with us in any way will know. Any other Kate Bush songs that you particularly love? Running Up That Hill. That's oh, classic. The end of that, um, one of the battle scenes is set to which, that. I can see that. Which, which yeah. battle, which battle scene? Have I read it yet? Uh, yeah, the end. The, the, oh, no, you haven't actually. The last okay. one. Oh, the last oh, one. So yeah. there's a battle coming. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought there might be. There might be, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, you know. Um, so when can we expect the spider? Uh, the plan at the moment is April, but um, as I said, I set up quite a few like plot strands I need to resolve, so there's a fair amount of rewriting to by then. So we'll see. But April is is on the cards. Also, take your time. <laughs> there's no rush. We will talk. There is to a our, rush. We'll talk to our editor. We'll like get them to put your deadline back. It's like just look after yourself, Leo. <laughs> take it easy. Yeah. <laughs> And um, um, and in any kind of, I mean, obviously it's like it's so visual and like so the whole way mm. through, I'm thinking like you know I'd love to see the hinge in and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Is there any talk of 
TV or like any anything like that, or would that be like something that you'd love to happen, like TV or film or something? Yeah, like that? yeah, not at the moment. I love, I would love that to happen, um, but my uh, my agents are on maternity leave at the moment, and so maybe we'll sort of. Um, discuss that afterwards yeah. but um yeah no be very intrigued cool. to see that yeah well yeah, I, cool. I fully believe that will happen because it's incredibly entertaining and oh, yeah thank you I'm, um, I'm excited to read the whole trilogy thank you very much yeah, sweet well thank you very much thank you thank you very much for having me good whilst we have you not that you can go anywhere um we'd like to bend your ear about an amazing new service that we've just launched it's called the Riffraff Manuscript Shakedown, and it's for any of you who are looking for proper constructive feedback on your writing. It doesn't matter where you are in your writing process. We've got options for everybody at different prices, because let's face it, nobody goes into writing to become a millionaire. Although J.K. Rowling's done pretty well, and Stephen King, and J.D. Pickles probably earned a bit. Anyway, um, the Riffraff Manuscript Shakedown is the friendliest manuscript feedback service in town. And if you dream of getting published, we really recommend you check it out. I mean, we would definitely say that, but still do it. You can find all the details on our website, the-riffraff.com. The Riffraff podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. Come say hey at the-riffraff.com. Riffraff.